Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 18, only one week late, which I apologize for. This time we're going to talk about strange ways to cook food. And we'll also discuss the two-water tank system for fresh water, non-slip sticky pads, and a crazy place to visit in Iowa that is kind of famous. And you have probably seen it if you've ever driven through Iowa, but we'll talk about it in some depth. Welcome. So, yes, this is being recorded during the COVID times. This is going to be one of those um, events of world history that people will look back on. In fact, somebody referred to this as the end of the post 9-11 times, where 9-11 will no longer be the most significant thing people remember in their lifetimes. I don't know about that. We'll have to see how it goes, but things are weird. And because of that, I have uh, missed an entire week of recording, and I apologize for that. I was stationed um, at McCormick Place in Chicago to potentially help set up the impromptu hospital there and then I was at a warehouse and I have been all over and away from my recording equipment. So I'm recommitting myself to getting these things out every Wednesday and here I am today doing just that. I thought that uh, since everyone is being inundated with COVID-19 talk that perhaps we should kind of put that aside for now and just have like a normal episode. And in that spirit I thought maybe we would talk about something not so normal. And that is strange ways to cook. So cooking, the process of cooking, what are you actually doing? The first answer most people are going to give is, well, you're heating things up. And while that's true, it isn't actually completely true. Cooking is, by strictest definition, the denaturing of proteins. That's what you're doing. And heat is very, very good at this. But there are other ways to do it. And uh, I'm going to dive into this topic with something that's probably going to scare off a lot of people, but let me explain. There is a thing called chemical cooking. I know the word chemical has gotten a bad rap, but come on now, take a step back and look around you. Everything you see is made of chemicals. There are good chemicals and there are bad chemicals. The word shouldn't be scary. The fact that something contains chemicals simply means that it exists. And let's remember that a lot of these natural chemicals like, oh, arsenic, cyanide, and tiger poo are all things that are not necessarily stuff you want to ingest. So that said, chemical cooking is simply the method of denaturing proteins with chemicals as opposed to heat. And those chemicals, well, they can have scary sounding names. Like one of them is acetic acid, um, which is another name for basically vinegar. And lemon juice is another one. Basically acids are the typical way to do this. It's not always true. Um, hominy, if you've ever heard of hominy, hom- hominy is what grits are made out of. Hominy is corn that has been treated with lye which is the opposite of an acid. Lye is, you could kind of think of it as what soap is made out of. Um, it's super, super basic. It has a really, really high pH, and it, it denatures the corn into this other substance that becomes grits. Anyway, I'm going way too far down that chain, but suffice it to say that chemicals plus food equals yumminess, and it's okay. So, we living in vans or traveling in vans, we have this issue where, you know, you have to stop and cook, and It takes up energy, it takes up time, so if we could do it chemically, that would actually have a value because it could be done while we were driving. And I know of two basic recipes that I enjoy 
that you can do with chemical cooking. And the first is something you may have had. Um, it's called ceviche. Ceviche is basically quote unquote raw fish that's been treated with lemon juice. Usually you could also use other types of vinegar and, um, there's usually like a pico de gallo that's mixed in with it. Um, some onions and peppers and things like that. This is soaked in lemon juice or vinegar for an extended period of time. And that cooks the fish and that's it. You could start out in the morning, take out all your raw fish and you want to get good quality raw fish. I mean, if you caught it yourself, that's great. But if you didn't make sure you get it from a reputable market, make sure that it is, well, the words they use is sushi grade. It's not entirely reliable, but that's what you want. Uh, basically fish that's meant to be eaten raw. Find your favorite ceviche recipe. They're all going to be basically mix it all up and let it sit for a long time. And you put it in a Ziploc bag and then when you get to your destination at lunchtime, you're going to have a, a delicious and, you know, high gourmet meal. There's another recipe, though, that um, I think is worth looking at. And it's similar, but it's uh, Filipino rather than Mexican. And it's called Kinalawin. Apparently, there's a lot of um, discussion about how it's pronounced. Kinalawin or Kinilaw. Anyway, it's spelled K-I-N-I-L-A-W. And it's similar to ceviche, but it has a distinctly um, tropical sense to it. One of the basic differences is that law is typically cured with vinegar rather than citrus. Although I see some recipes that use limes or some other types of citrus, but it doesn't really matter. You just need some acidity there to make it work. So this recipe here is a, is a little bit of a coconutty recipe. I just threw that in there because I thought it would be fun. And you start off with three quarters of a cup of unsweetened coconut milk. And you can get that in a can or another source. It's nice because you don't have to refrigerate it a quarter cup of raw coconut vinegar. Now you might not be able to find coconut vinegar. And if you can't, that's fine. You can use apple cider vinegar or red wine vinegar. Again, it's just going to affect the flavor a little bit. It's not a big deal. Half a small red onion. You're going to thinly slice that. Some chilies, preferably Thai chilies for that Asian flavor, but just any kind of chilies will actually work. A bit of grated ginger, another nice thing to have in your van because it keeps well and it's easy to add to stuff. Some cilantro stems, unless you think cilantro tastes like soap, which a lot of people do. A teaspoon of salt, quarter teaspoon of pepper, and then about three quarters of a pound of some kind of fish. It can be tuna, it can be wahoo, it can be haddock, whatever you have access to. Shrimp work great. If you have frozen shrimp, that's perfect. You could even do scallops. Any kind of fish is going to be fine. You can actually have several kinds of fish if you want to be interesting. And the last thing is three tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil. And it's very nice to serve this with some lime wedges. That's the ingredients. But how to make it is actually, you basically... You basically throw it all together, stir it up, and then refrigerate it for 20 minutes. It does need to be kept cold because while that curing process is going on, stuff could grow there. So you do need to have a cooler or cool weather or refrigerator. But yeah, in 20 minutes, you've got this lovely exotic dish and you can do whatever you want. I mean, that's the basic recipe. You can, you can add carrots if you like carrots. You can add celery. You can add whatever the heck you'd like in here. But fish is kind of essential for it to be this dish. So it's super simple. Um, it doesn't take all that much time and it doesn't need any heat and boy, it sounds yummy. So in order to keep the fish and, and to keep any leftovers, of course, you're going to need some uh, refrigeration, but Hey, chemical cooking is a, an odd way to cook that you can do in a van without too much trouble. So anyway, give it a try.
I'll have some links for some recipes and stuff in the show notes. On a completely opposite end of the spectrum, we can go back to heat. And there's different ways to get heat than you might be aware of. Um, obviously, you can build a fire, or you can use your little um, jet boil, or you can use your propane stove or your butane stove. There's all those things. Or you can use um, your microwave oven if you have one of those in a van. But you can also use the sun. Um, the sun has been used for cooking for a long time. And of course, you can only do solar cooking if you have time and you're in one place. This is not something you're likely to do while you're driving. But they've actually come out with a bunch of new kinds of solar ovens that um, collapse nicely. The old style of solar ovens were kind of these tinfoil boxes that you'd open up. And you'd have to aim them at the sun. And then you'd have to kind of keep moving them to track the sun. And it took a really long time to cook. And then you ended up with this big, messy box and... It wasn't all that great, but they have these new ones that kind of look like old-style thermoses, and they open up, and the halves of the thermos kind of focus the sun's rays with this mirror finish, and uh, it's a much more portable solution. So if that sounds like a fun project, you can definitely look at that. I'll try to have a link in the show notes for one of those things. For me, it's not such a great option because I move around a lot, but if you were stuck in a campground and wanted to make like a fun treat, solar is definitely something you could consider. As an aside, and I know not very many of you listening have dishwashers in your van, you can cook in your dishwasher. There is actually um, a set of recipes for cooking in the dishwasher. Because if you think about it, inside your dishwasher is very hot and very wet. <laughs> That's basically how we cook a lot of stuff. Uh, typically, what you can do in a dishwasher is poach fish. That seems to be the most common thing to do. I just mentioned that as kind of like, hey, there's a weird thing to do when you're stuck at home during COVID times. Why not cook some fish in your dishwasher? I've always wondered why you would do that rather than just cook it on the stove that's probably just a couple feet away. But hey, you do you. Those of you who don't have dishwashers in your van, however, have another option, and that is cooking on the engine. This is a time-honored tradition. Ever since engines were first invented, people have realized, hmm... These things produce heat. Heat cooks. I can put my lunch on there. I mean, this factory workers used to do this. Um, engineers on old locomotives used to do this. This is a very time-honored practice. And you can do it too. But there's, there's some things you should know. Uh, the first is that you need a suitable container. Now, they do sell stainless steel containers expressly designed for cooking on your engine. They seal tight, they're tough, and they have wiry clasped things that kind of attach it to the engine. I'll try to have a link for that too. But they're 35 bucks, which isn't terrible for cookware. And uh, my thing is you really don't actually need that because the other thing you can do is just plain old aluminum foil, but you need a lot of it. We're not talking one layer of aluminum foil here. We're talking like five for two reasons. One, you don't want anything in your engine getting in your food, obviously. I mean, you've got road dust, you've got whatever greases are cooking off in your engine, all that kind of stuff. You definitely don't want that in your food. You can't wrap it in plastic because it'll be way too hot. So you're going to use a whole bunch of foil. And basically how this works is you, you get squares of tin foil, say 18 inches by 18 inches, pretty big. You put your food in the middle, which can be almost anything. Chicken, beef, veggies, uh, not so much beef. Beef is a little trickier because the cooking times matter more for beef. But fish and chicken and veggies work really well. You stick them in the middle of the tin foil, and then you kind of wrap it like a present where you're, you're going to cover the whole thing and then fold the corners over several times. You want it to be very secure. 
You want it so that you can turn this package over and there will be no dripping and nothing's going to come out because that's the other worry. You're worried about your food getting out, not because it's going to like, you know, drip on the road. It's because it's going to drip on your engine. You don't want cooking stuff on your engine. Um, some of it is very acidic and that can cause damage to your engine. You certainly don't want that, but it's also going to add the smell of cooking to your engine compartment and that could attract animals and you definitely don't want animals in there. You might have that problem anyway with this cooking because obviously as you cook, steam is going to find a way to escape and that steam is going to have, you know, some odor with it. So just keep that in mind. But there are lots and lots of recipes for this. In fact, in Boy Scouts, we used to do a thing, and I'm sure Girl Scouts did too, called foil dinners, which was the exact same thing, except it was done on coals of a fire. So any foil dinner recipe you can find, you can also do that on your engine. The tricky part is, is knowing how long to cook it. There are sites that, that try to break down the recipes by how many miles you're going to drive. Well, that only works if they've calibrated it to your engine. A four-cylinder engine is not necessarily going to have the same temperature as a six-cylinder or an eight-cylinder or just the way the engine's designed. Um, the Pentastar engine in Promasters runs hotter than the Nissan engine in my NV200. I, I just happen to know that. It's about 20 to 30 degrees warmer. Obviously, that's going to affect cooking time. But think about this. Uh, this is a fun cool option that doesn't take you any time especially if you're driving let's say you're just trying to get somewhere you're not you're not like trying to experience a place you're just trying to get from point a to point b but you'd still like a hot meal at lunch this is a great solution you know you pull into the rest area you use some tongs and grab your meal off the engine and then you're good to go find some unusual ways to cook challenge yourself you know maybe go a week without cooking you have to spend this entire week in your van without cooking can you do it what are your experiences that kind of stuff is what adds variety and heh, spice to the whole van life adventure. Okay, tech talk. There is a lot of talk about what kind of filter you want to get for your fresh water in your van. And one of the most important resources in your van is the amount of fresh water you have. Once you run out of fresh water, you're, you're kind of limited in what you can do in the van. A lot of folks will spend a lot of time and effort putting in elaborate filters. Some even put in UV filters because they, they're worried that they want their water quality to be good, and I don't blame them. But I can, I'm going to tell you the method I use, and it, what I find is that it's, it's carefree, and I, I really like carefree. I use the two-tank system for fresh water. I have a six-gallon jerry can that has a pump in it, and that is my main water supply. Now that water in there is, is good water, it's drinkable, but I also treat it with a little bit of bleach, and it also sits in that plastic jerry can for a long time, so it doesn't actually taste very good. Now if I had to drink it, I would be fine, but that's not what I want to use for cooking so much. That's what I use for showering and cleaning and those kind of things. I have another one gallon tank that's basically just a big pitcher that I put only known good drinking water in. It's the only thing that's ever going to go in there. Um, whether I'm at home and I know I can use my faucet or if I have purchased water somewhere, that's the only thing that ever goes in this jug. And I keep them separate. And so when I'm cooking, I will reach for the one gallon jug and use that water. Or if I just want to drink, I'll use that water. And then for everything else, I use the six gallon water. 
my thinking is this. There's no point in filtering water that you're going to shower with or you're going to wash dishes with. It just doesn't matter. If you're not ingesting the water, it doesn't have to be that pure. You could certainly shower in straight river water, depending on the quality of the river, and that would be fine. And washing dishes, as long as you're drying the dishes, that's, that's all you really need to do. And if you're concerned about it, you add a little bit of bleach. A cap full of bleach in a six-gallon jerry can is pretty much going to kill everything. And it also affects the flavor a little bit. So think about this as a possible solution for you. If you have a simple build and you don't want to go to the expense and trouble of putting in a filter, because let me tell you something, those things leak. If there's anything leaking in your van, it's probably going to be your water filter fittings. Try the two-container method. And your two-container method can be as simple as this. Fill up your main water tank with whatever source you can find, and then just keep buying a gallon of water at the store. <laughs> I mean, it, that actually works, and it's like 69 cents for a gallon bottle of water at most grocery stores. So keep it simple, keep it safe, and again, do what you think is best. Okay, I'm going to do a product review of something I picked up recently. It's a totally an impulse buy. This wasn't something I was looking for, but I saw it at a truck stop and I was like, well, that's interesting. And it's called the Tree Frog Sticky Pad. It's uh, seven inches by nine inches, so it's a little smaller than a piece of paper. And it's basically just this big blue sticky pad. If you've uh, ever played with those toys that you throw at the wall and then they slowly climb down, or sometimes they're a hand on a on like a string and you can whip them and they stretch out and grab something and bring it back to you, it's that kind of jelly stuff. Um, very common in vending machine toys for kids. This is just a giant piece of it. One feature that the American models of the NV200 have is that the passenger seat folds down into a desk. It's really pretty cool. Uh, I use this thing all the time. Basically, the back of the seat is hard plastic and it's recessed and you can put stuff on there. But of course, you know, stuff moves around. So what I did was I took this tree frog pad and put it on there and holy cow, this thing works really well. I can take a full can of Diet Coke and sit it on this pad and drive around as though it's in a cup holder. That can is not going to move. Some liquid might spill out, but the can is not going to move. But anything you put on there, even even odd things, like pieces of wood, I mean, just, you know, why would I have a piece of wood? I don't know. But any kind of thing you have, like a pine cone. Why would I have a pine cone? It doesn't matter. It will stick on this thing. So, does it work? Absolutely. And of course, the idea is that you would take this and put it on your dashboard. I mean, I, I just happen to have this lovely desk next to me, but if you put it on your dashboard, you could easily set your sunglasses on there or any type of little thing like that that tends to fly about, you know, pens, and it will stay there. So, is it a win? Yes, I recommend it. But, it does have some problems. Um, if you happen to stop and get some fast food and you have a napkin and that napkin lands on there, that napkin is now part of that pad. It ain't coming off. Now, there is a way to get it off. You can uh, remove the entire pad and wash it in a sink with, you know, some Dawn dishwashing liquid, something like that. And that will rejuvenate it and it will be just as good as new. But it is kind of annoying that you have this place that you can put things, but anything that is like rippable or basically anything that's paper, 
you don't want it to touch that. And you have a lot of paper in your van usually. You've got receipts and maps and all that kind of stuff. So you have to keep that away from this thing. Also, it collects dust. Of course it does. Any kind of dust or anything that lands on there is going to stay there permanently. So it does need to be cleaned every so often. But cleaning is really easy. You just throw it in the sink and, and with uh, some sudsy water and let it dry, which doesn't take very long, and it's fine. And it's it literally does come out just like new. The stickiness never goes away, and it never leaves a residue. That's why uh, I really like it. So the one I have is the Tree Frog 7x9 pad. They're the, it, they're kind of expensive. Um, mine was $18. There are other brands that sell different ones that are different colors. Mine happens to be bright blue. Uh, doesn't I wasn't really shopping for color. You can get whatever you want. But it's a great thing to have. You know what it's good for? Cameras. If you have a GoPro or some kind of a camera you're using, you can just set it down there and not even worry about it. And, and you could even stick it on your dash and like mount your camera to it. It is that strong. I should try that, actually. One other thing I haven't done but I think is an interesting idea, you could cut this thing up. If you had a weird shape that you wanted to turn, like a recessed area in your dashboard that you wanted to have a sticky pad in, you could take one of these and cut it and stick it in there. I think it would work really well. I like it. Non-slip sticky pads. The one I have is the Tree Frog. I'll have uh, links in the show notes, and there's many, many, many of them. Give it a try. So here's a place to visit. The place I bought the sticky pad. Uh, before all this madness started with the COVID thing, I went out to do a training in Iowa and I stopped at Iowa 80 or I 80 or it's folks. If you've ever driven on I 80 in Iowa, Eastern part of Iowa in Walcott specifically, you have seen this place. It is the world's largest truck stop, typically called Iowa 80. This thing was started in the 60s by a guy named Bill Moon, and he bought all this land around a gas station thinking that, hey, this might be useful for something. Well, yeah, it's the world's largest truck stop now. It is just about the same size as Disneyland in California, and while it doesn't have any rides, it has a lot of things you would not expect to find at a truck stop. Yes, it has a big store. Uh, a, a really big store. I mean, you can buy every kind of candy and nut and whatever the heck else you want for the road. It also has a big chrome shop. And if you're not familiar with that term, that's what truckers call the shops that sell all the chrome nuts and lights. And uh, yeah, do you know all those little yellow lights they have on the trucks are called chicken lights? I just learned that recently. They've got all that stuff. Every kind of 12 volt appliance you could want, beds, everything, basically everything you could want for a truck they sell. But wait, there's more. They have a few sit-down restaurants, there's a big food court, and of course, 800 million gas pumps and fuel pumps. And this is a weird option, but it might be useful to you. They have a dentist. Yes, they have a dentist. Like, you can go get gas and then get a filling and then get back on the road. And it's actually a really great idea. It takes all kinds of insurance, he'll take cash payments, whatever. That's brilliant because sometimes that's hard. If you're a traveling type person, you don't have a relationship with a dentist necessarily. Well, this dentist, he's now your dentist. You just have to get to Iowa. But the thing I love the most is they have a museum. I'm a big sucker for museums and they have the Iowa 80 trucking museum. And you can learn a lot about the history of trucks. For example, did you know that trucks did not used to be able to go long distances. When cars started becoming common and heavy-duty cars became trucks, they had a problem in that they, 
were weight limited. They couldn't actually have them weigh too much because they didn't have tires that could support the weight. So trucks were typically just used to go from train to warehouse in the city, and that's it. Low mileage, low speed. And then Goodyear developed a new kind of pneumatic tire, which it called the Wingfoot. You may have seen these winged feet in their logo that allowed trucks to travel at highway speeds. And this was a huge advance. And to celebrate this, they actually created the Goodyear blimp. So there's a big, long history there that I won't bore you with, although it's fascinating. I should probably tell that as a story sometime. But in this truck museum at Iowa 80, you can actually see the old trucks with their solid rubber tires. And then it's not until these heavy-duty pneumatic tires came about that trucks became anything looking like what we think of as a truck today. So really interesting place to go. And like all of these museums... Um, that have vehicles in them, you can find ideas for your van in here. You just have to have an open mind, that the right mindset to look and see what other people use to solve their issues. Can you use that to solve yours? I'm going to talk about a different place to visit that's a better example of that, but I one of the reasons I go to museums is for that to find solutions to problems. And I've used crazy things that I've learned in all kinds of museums in my own van. So anyway, check this out. So that's Iowa 80. How do you get there? You travel on I-80 in Iowa. It's, you cannot miss this place. It is huge. It's meant to fleece you, of course. They're trying to get as much money out of you as possible, but it's not unreasonable. The bathrooms are nice and clean. There's tons of food options. It's a great place to stop. And you could stop and spend hours there if you wanted to. If you're one of those people that likes to stop and read the signs like I am, definitely check out the museum. It's it's one of the nicest, easiest to access truck museums in the country. And I have truck museums I like better, but this one I really like because it's indoors. So, Iowa 80, Walcott, Iowa. Tales from the Road. So a few years ago, my son Simon and I, yes, that same Simon who's done the music for the show, uh, were down in southern Florida on the west coast, and we had booked an excursion to take a boat out to 10,000 Islands, which is, well, it's what it sounds like. It's a whole bunch of islands off the west coast of Florida, and there's a lot of fascinating stuff out there, but I'll save that for another story. This story is about the event that took place prior to us going on the boat, which was that we arrived there early. We were maybe an hour and a half early and we had some time to kill. And I looked at the GPS and I was like, well, let's see what else is down here. Now, the answer is that there isn't that much. Southwestern Florida is right, it's mostly the Everglades. Um, there isn't that much there, but there is some stuff. And as we were just driving around looking, we found a, a street sign that said, Jane's Scenic Drive. That sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds like a good way to kill, you know, 15, 20 minutes. It's a scenic drive. I thought it would be kind of like just a scenic drive through the swamp and come out in a loop and you'd end up basically where you started. I was wrong. Jane Scenic Drive, I know that somebody created it as a tourist thing that is long since gone, but the street name remains. It is not, in fact, a loop. It is a windy road that goes through the swamp, which is great. Uh, we did see, in a side here, we did see some really scenic stuff on that. Um, we didn't see any vistas, but we saw 
softshell turtles skittering across the road, and lots and lots of ghost orchids, which are fairly rare and um, are subject to poaching in, in Florida. In fact, somebody wrote a book about that not too long ago. So it, that was all great. The trouble happened when Jane Scenic Drive ended into this massive, massive set of grid road. Um, let me describe that a little better. It was an entire city grid laid out in the swamp, but with no houses or buildings or anything. It was just the roads. I thought, well, this is weird. So we started driving around, and then we noticed that some of these roads were underwater. So we couldn't actually go where we wanted to go. And then, you know, we had killed enough time, and I set the GPS to go back to the boat dock, and no signal. I was like, uh-oh. At that point, I had not remembered how we got where we were, and I was trapped because there was basically this one road that went into this massive grid and then no way out. In the far distance, I could see the interstate, I mean, miles away, it's like way at the horizon. So I started heading towards there, and I got there, but there was no way to get on the interstate. However, I did get enough signal to actually download a map, but that wasn't good enough because the map showed the way the roads are supposed to be. It didn't show which ones were above water. So it took Simon and I about 90 minutes to get out of there and finally find that road out. Turns out that where we were was a famous land swindle. You, you may have heard the expression, uh, I've got some swampland to sell you in Florida. This was that swampland. It's a community near Naples called Golden Gate and they basically built all these roads and sold these lots to people without letting them know that it was actually a swamp and doesn't not really all that much like dry land there. I mean, significant parts of this place were underwater and there's only one way in or out. So you get in and then if you drive around at all, you're stuck. There's no way out. So we, we did manage to get out and we did manage to get to the boat. We had a lovely trip and out to the 10,000 Islands, which is a fascinating place. If you ever get a chance to visit, head out there, go to Pavilion Key and try to learn about the history of that place. But yeah, so a um, little word to the wise that we rely on our technology to help us navigate, but sometimes that technology isn't there and it's really good to have a paper map if you can. And uh, I didn't, and uh, it, well, in this case, it may not have helped all that much, but yeah, be prepared. That's all I'm saying. Well, folks, thank you for listening to this episode 18. I really appreciate you listening. I do have a favor to ask. I am curious as to which of the segments that you guys like. Which of, If I were going to drop a segment, and I'm not saying I'm going to, what would you like me to drop, and which one would you like me to do more of? Do you like the tales from the road, or are they annoying? Uh, is the tech talk useful? Let me know. Do you like places to visit? All those things. Which do you like and which do you don't like? If you could post on Facebook or send me an email or whatever, that would be great. I'm available at jeff at builttogo.com. Have yourself an amazing week.